Welcome to the MFA Insider Podcast, where we take a look at one of the country's 250 plus MFA programs, sitting down with the current creative writing student to talk about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm Jared McCormick. And I'm Gianna Miniacci. And I'm Montana Patrick. Today, we're excited to be joined by Ember Johnson. Ember lives and writes in Center City, Minnesota, where she is in her final semester of a creative writing MFA at the University of Minnesota. Before U of M, Ember completed her BA in creative writing at Metropolitan State University. She was a winner of the 2013-14 Loft Mentor Series in nonfiction, and most recently was awarded a Minnesota State Arts Board Artist Initiative Grant for 2020. Kudos for that, Ember. Ember's work has appeared in Georgetown Review, Fourth Genre, and last year her essay Serpentine, which focuses on her experience as a military wife and widow, was published in the Missouri Review. And we're really excited to talk to her, so let's get to it. Ember, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about the MFA program a little bit. Um, according to the um, school's website, the program at Minnesota is a fully funded three-year program. Um, I noticed that Great River Review, which is the longest running literary journal in Minnesota and um, was for many years published in Red Wing at the Anderson Center, is now housed at the University of Minnesota. So I'm curious, being from the area, how much did you know about the program before you applied? Um, were there professors that drew you there? Other nonfiction memoirists who were teaching there? Well, yeah, um, Patricia Hempel, I, I knew of her. Um, and, you know, and that's kind of strange, too. Um, it was 10 years ago when my husband passed. And at the time that he died, I had just, I had been a stay-at-home mom. Um, I had had a previous career in land surveying. And he, when he deployed um, to Iraq, um, that career kind of, hit the dirt. And so we essentially um, just figured out how to live off of his income. Um, so I didn't have a job anymore. So then when he passed, I was like, I actually looked up the U of M. My point is, as I looked up, I was like, what would it take for me to get an MFA <laughs> um, from, the, from the University of Minnesota? Um, so I actually looked it up and discovered, found the path. And I was like, oh, I have to finish my bachelor's degree. Um, how am I going to do that? Right. And so I figured out that uh, Metropolitan State University had a degree in creative writing. And so I kind of reverse engineered it is how I went about that. So then when I was looking online, I saw who the professors were. Um, and so I knew of Patricia Hempel um, and Charlie Baxter. And, and then I actually, then I started reading the, um, the works and learning who was there, who I didn't know of and started reading their stuff and just, yeah. Can That's I ask great. you about that, that process then? So your goal was to get the MFA, right? Yeah. And then you reverse engineered it back to the BA so that yeah. you would have this path. And, and what did you hope that MFA would do? I don't know. I, at that time, I, it's just something I wanted. I just wanted to write and I wanted to, because I looked at it, I kind of looked at it as like, old school right like you know the, all the great artists they studied under the masters right 
Mm-hmm. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. I just, I want to write and I want to write well. And so that was a very specific goal. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I actually had no idea that I was actually going to be able to do it. I just, and I just, I don't know. And it just kind of happened. Well, I think, I think that's a great answer. Every time people ask me that question, like why an MFA, I was like, because I love to write. It's a way to write. It's really that simple. You say the same thing too, Jared. You always say, because I want to write well. And that's just what Emma said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, and we've (laughs) talked, and we, we've talked before about um, one of the things that that we really love about MFA programs is the diversity of backgrounds. You, you describe yourself as a non-traditional student. Like, uh, I, I don't know about the program in Minnesota, but in, in, at UMKC, we have a really wide range of people from different backgrounds, different ages coming into the MFA program for different reasons. Um, and I think it helps the writing. I think the different views, the different uh, worldviews really help those different sets of eyes on your work. Is it like that in Minnesota? Oh, for sure. Yeah. In fact, I'm one of, you know, I'm just, I'm one of the few students who's actually from Minnesota um, in my, in my cohort. So I felt so incredibly just lucky and grateful to even be there really um, because there's so many, so many good writers. Do, Do the writers in the program mainly tend toward nonfiction or are they memoirists like you? Are there more fiction writers? Uh, are they genre? Yeah, there is um, generally, it's four people per genre that come in. So it's 12 total. So um, so four poetry, four fiction, four nonfiction. And we get to know each other and this is what I really appreciated. I don't know what it's like in your program, but I really appreciate it because the first semester we're all together um, for uh, a class reading across genres. So we get to know each other um, as a, as a cohort. Um, And then we also are required throughout the three years. um, We do have to take, uh, a class or two, I can't remember how many, um, outside of our genre, for sure. Um, Amber, I'm curious about the broader uh, school or town setting outside of the MFA program. The Twin Cities is considered the largest literary publishing hub outside of the New York-Boston area. What was it like studying there? Uh, were there networking opportunities? Was there a sense of community among the writers there? What can our listeners expect if they go or if they study in the Twin Cities? Part of my part of my bio says that um, I was in the mentor series at the Loft. Um, now the Loft Literary Center is in Minneapolis, and they're a really um, unique place where a lot of um, a lot of U of M. Grad students will teach classes there um, during the course course of the year and also over the summer. Um, And there's publishing opportunities. There's internships at publishers um, that are advertised. um, And also some grad students um, are being published um, and are really generous with, you know, who they know, how they're, publishing process has gone, um, introducing, you know, 
people to people. Yeah. It's, um, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of benefit for sure. I mean, even in Kansas city, we have, um, quite a few literary events here, but I imagine in the twin cities, it's like another level. Oh my goodness. Um, pick a day, any day. And you can, there's readings, there's, yeah. Um, there's in the summertime, there's, I guess the loft is putting on festivals. Um, last October, um, the loft did a, I guess it would be like a, it was a, like a pitch conference. It was a several day event. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was a little expensive um, for students, I thought. Um, they did offer some scholarships, but you, you kind of had to get in early on that, and I missed the deadline on that. But I spent some money, and I just went, and I ended up, you know, there were two agents that were interested, you know, in my manuscripts um, when I finish it. Um, so there's lots of that kind of opportunity. So you live in Center City, which is about 45 minutes north of the university and has a population of 628. Um, Would you say living there has helped or hindered your time in the program in any way? Um, Were you able to focus on writing more by living outside the city? (laughs) Um, uh, That's an excellent question. Um, Well, I... (laughs) Center City. Let's see. Well, I moved here um, because of the the house. So I just fell in love with the house that I bought. So um, come to find out, it's the oldest Swedish settlement in Minnesota. And my house is a dome house. So it's a geodesic dome um, that I'm renovating and apparently it's the oldest dome house in Minnesota as well. I didn't know that, but, um, has it helped or hindered? I am over the commute. I can tell you that. Um, um, I wish, I feel like I have missed out on some of the, probably some of the camaraderie, um, some of the social stuff, some of the events, um, you know, I probably haven't gotten to as many of the events that I, you know, probably would have attended, um, readings, things like that. Um, on the other hand, I more think time for writing, that. maybe What's that? <laughs> more time for writing, maybe a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have gotten a lot of writing done for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Emperor, you wrote an essay called Serpentine, which was a finalist for the 2018 Jeffrey E. Smith Editor's Prize at the Missouri Review. The pieces about your experience as a military wife and widow, offering a unique perspective on the burden of carrying on alone. We've all read this piece. It's available at themissouriReview.com, also in the summer 2019 edition of TMR. It's honest, beautiful, and moving, and not just because of the subject matter, it's also heartbreaking and very well written. This essay started as an assignment, is that right? Could you talk a bit about that and how this essay came together? Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it started out as an assignment in my non, I think it was my nonfiction seminar that was taught by Kim Todd. Um, and I think the seminar was, 
I uh, basically a, a class about witnessing somebody else's experience. And so um, I decided to, you know, challenge myself to do that with my husband's experience because, um, you know, obviously that's a big part of what you experience as a military spouse. Um, and a, uh, and a, a big part of his experience was, um, you know, was this traumatic part of what he didn't remember. Yeah, well, uh, I would just second what Gianna said. It's obviously the subject matter is heartbreaking, but it's it's not just that. It's just so well-written. Um, I was absolutely moved by it uh, and could not stop once I started the first word. I just sped through it. Um, it was really beautiful. Ah, well, thank you. Um, yeah, it is. It, and it is a surprise how essays do come together. Um, like the last sentence of that essay, I wrote somewhere in the middle. And I was like, as soon as I wrote it, I was like, oh, that's the last sentence. And then I'll move it to the end. And then I'm like, and then I'm like, okay, now I know where I'm writing to, right? Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, I often do, when I'm writing somewhere around the middle, realize what the ending is, you know, and I write fiction. So a lot of times I'm pushing myself to not know what the story's about and just um, let it develop on its own. But there, there comes a point at where you just realize how it's going to end. And then you just, for me, it's the same way. I'm, I'm working towards that ending. That's really interesting that it works the same way for you with nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, this was my first experience. This essay was my first experience um, where I realized that the um, form of it, the shape of it, um, was also embedded with the meaning in a way, in a significant way. So on Serpentine, you wrote, I saw how a structure of switchbacks could move a reader through a serpentine of memories and how those memories could travel alongside a lived experience, but in the opposite direction, which is how I ultimately defined my role as witness to my husband's life. Could you explain what you meant by that? I think what I meant is there's, a, there's kind of a, a way in which when we're writing about things or when I'm, when I'm thinking about things, you know, I'm viewing our life in a certain way and it's, so you're viewing it kind of through the rear view mirror. Right. Um, but as you're viewing it through this rear view mirror, you're still kind of reliving it also, um, at the same time. So it's kind of like the sensation of going backwards and forwards almost at the same time. Um, and you know, when you're, when you're traveling on a switchback, it's almost like, it's almost like you're, you know, you're passing, you're coming so close, you know, and you're just so close. It's almost like two different, it's like parallel planes in a way of existence, but you're going in opposite directions. And everybody knows as well, like every time you remember something, you change it. So, I mean, that memory actually changes a little bit every single time 
you experience it again. And I would say that's what makes nonfiction really, really interesting to me um, is knowing as you're writing it, you're remembering an actual thing that happened, but um, you can't separate yourself or deny the fact that the way you remember it might not be exactly how it happened. Right. And the interesting thing about this is that once you write it, and that's the thing, it's like once you write it, it is that though forever. Like that's what it is. And so for that reason, there there are things that I'm never going to write because I actually want it to stay the I want it to stay elastic and you know, fluid and changeable. And so for that reason, there are things that I'm just never going to write. Well, um, Ember, you, you have a truly interesting story to tell. And um, we've heard that you turned in your thesis this week. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> Um, so your thesis was a memoir titled Basic Rules of Combat, which tells the deeply personal story of being the spouse left behind on the home front during the Iraq war. Um, I've always said that it's, it's easy as part of one of these programs in an MFA program to get distracted by the, the need to publish and forget that writing is a form of self-exploration. And for a lot of people, it's a form of therapy. I know it is for me. And so I'm wondering what it was like working on your story as part of a program. Um, if you thought that was beneficial or distracting to be writing on a deadline um, and, and how your professors maybe supported you in that process. Oh, gosh. Um, I think if I'm one of these people, if there's not a deadline, um, it's just... I could probably just keep tinkering away forever. Um, so deadlines are good for me. Um, and professors that hold you accountable for deadlines are even better. <laughs> um, I guess because this story has to be written before I can write anything else. Um, and I knew that a lot, you know, I actually started writing this while my husband was deployed for the second time. Before his deployments, though, I had written fiction. Um, and while, you know, it was my experience of being a military spouse, um, and it was my experience of war, really, um, that I discovered that, oh my God, I have got some shit to say about this. And so, that's when I started taking classes at the loft on how, you know, like, okay, how do I write nonfiction and how do I do this? And ironically, um, I had an essay published in um, Georgetown Review titled Vigil um, that was published um, like a month before he died that was weirdly appropriate and we read it at his funeral, um, ironically appropriate, um, because it was about, I was in this, in this, um, essay, I, I talked about my experience of, I hit, um, a red tailed hawk with my truck, um, while he was deployed and I'm burying 
this hawk because I felt so bad in the yard. And my teenage daughter is confronting me because <laughs> she thinks I'm being so weird about this. And I am, right? I am. Um, and so it's, it's an essay that's really kind of about, it's really about how through her, I confront my own, like, I guess, uh, fears of death and um, fear of, uh, for his safety, I think, um, because, you know, his, my very real fear of, for his safety um, overseas. And so, um, so basically, I, you know, there's, there's no other, I have a lot more to write about other things, but there's like, this has to be written before I can even write about all of anything else. You know, this story has to be, has to be written and, you know, and it's been 10 years, you know, he died. It's, it'll be 10 years in, in May. Um, so, you know, there's, when they talk about, you know, distance, you know, being necessary, you know, um, for, uh, I guess, uh, between, for, you know, traumatic events and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, 10 years is plenty for me um, to get perspective, you know, and to be able to write about it in a decent way, I guess. Well, I totally understand that idea that there's these stories sometimes that have to be written before we can move on to the next thing. So um, I'm, I'm really excited for you that you got your thesis turned in. Um, I can't, I can't wait, wait to read it. Ember, it's been so great to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the show. We wish you nothing but the best. Do you mind reading a bit from your memoir to close out the show? I would be happy to. Um, I will just start with um, what may be the opening chapter of it. Um, I haven't fully decided yet, but um, yeah, I'll just start with the chapter titled Prisoners. When a storm blew a transformer down the street and fried our television, my boyfriend and I went in on a new glorious big flat screen that weighed as much as a baby elephant. I came home from work to find a 10 foot long, six foot high entertainment center built right on the spot in our bedroom. He used posts and siding off an old barn, constructed shelves, compartments, a large open spot in the center for our new TV. The whole thing listed to one side. Rough-hewn boards overlapped and gapped. He stepped back to admire his work and bumped into the table saw he'd set up next to our bed. He left footprints in the sawdust on the floor. We needed a spot for our new TV, he said. It's a monster, I said. Only my head poked through the bedroom door. Made with love, he said. So a love monster, I said, stifling a laugh. It's perfect, he said. And that's how we watched a storm of bombs strobe and detonate against the black mutant green backdrop of night vision technology somewhere in a desert on the other side of the world. It was March 2003 in the United States, just invaded Iraq. The flickering explosions remained silent as a ticker tape of words ran along the bottom of the screen. F-117 Nighthawks 8th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron, Bunker Busters, Tomahawk Cruise Missiles, 
shock and awe. You gonna get called? I asked my boyfriend and gestured at the new television. As in, are National Guard soldiers real soldiers? I'd only ever heard of them sandbagging for floods. He was the first person I knew, my age, to serve. Depends, he said, and launched into a multifaceted scenario with words like brigade and division, MOS specifics, deployment, rotation schedules. But you never know, he said, and laughed. It's not like they can't call and say, pack your shit, bus leaves in the morning. I stopped petting the puppy that lay between us and reached for a cigarette. So what is it, again, that your unit does? I asked. He might as well speak to me in Russian or Mandarin. Chemical decontamination. But I'm a mechanic for the unit, small engine, he said, turning his voice to a hillbilly drawl. I fix broke stuff. By the time night vision bombs gave way to daytime segments of riots and looting, what I saw of Iraq was rubble and garbage everywhere, complete wreckage, charred vehicles and stray dogs and children in flip-flops, scarfed women sat in hospital waiting rooms ignoring the cameras, and while American news anchors speculated on hideouts and secret storage facilities, a group of American soldiers made a wrong turn in the desert separated from their convoy and were captured. Mechanics, said the ticker tape at the bottom of the screen, all of them. We both felt a surge of adrenaline and stayed up late into the night, actual prisoners of war. In the corners of my mind, I played with the images of my boyfriend getting the call, packing his things, saying goodbye, and me sitting here all alone with the television. At this point, they would have to use chemical they would have to use a chemical weapon for me to get deployed, he said. That's what we're trained for, and the Army doesn't have many decontamination units. But I heard the clipped edges, the neatly sliced consonants of expertise in his voice at, and his face during the pauses wanted to be in the fight. He chain-smoked. It was morning, and I sat half-dressed with a cigarette slowly burning between my fingers, mesmerized by CNN's playback loop of an interrogation of one of the captured soldiers, a female. Men in oddly matched Western clothing, not the green uniform of the Republican Guard, shouted in a foreign tongue in circles above her head. The camera zoomed in on her face and her eyes turned black and darted between them, jumping between the voices above her as if each one were a bar, was a bar in a cage that suddenly slammed down over the top of her. Her eyes were beautiful though, inky, terrified, and fierce. They expanded that one beat of time, that nearly imperceptible moment when opposite and unforgiving tension suddenly balanced. I glanced at my sleeping boyfriend at the golden-haired bamboo stretched across the pillow at the top of his head and decided not to wake them. Her eyes haunted me for days. Her name was Shoshana Johnson. She had been an army cook from Texas sent into battle to supply the mechanics who repaired Patriot missile trucks. Patriot missiles are missiles that shoot down other missiles. Six days went by. She had been in the last group of a massive convoy, got bogged in the sand and left behind. 13 days passed. Communication devices hadn't been working. Station navigators were not in position they drove into a city and into a mob of armed men. 17 days. 
rifles jammed. She got shot in both ankles. Her closest friend died on the field, along with 10 other soldiers. 22 days. I opened the shower door and stepped, dripping wet, onto the rug. I reached for a towel, but stopped at my reflection in the mirror. Carefully, I turned and stood before it. Rivulets of water ran down my face and neck. I had never liked looking at myself in the mirror. Droplets swelled and grew heavy and fell from my chin, my breasts, my fingertips. I stared into the blinking eyes of the reflection before me, traced the edges of her freckled face, the crooked cartilage that divided the nostrils of her nose, and the thin pleated skin of her lips. I was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. Hey, my boyfriend called to me from the bedroom. You got to see this. I snatched up a towel and stepped through the bedroom doorway as he pointed at the television. All of the captured soldiers were free. Immediately, I looked for Shoshana, but the news camera turned to the voice of a male soldier instead. Just told him over and over, the soldier was saying, I don't know anything. I fix broke stuff, and his hands gestured as if snapping a stick. You know, and he snapped his hands in half again. Broke stuff. Broke stuff. 